0: Hello, everyone. Uh, Rob here. Uh, Before we get to our episode today, which is a a great panel discussion, uh, Medina uh, calls in uh, from the train back to Washington and talks about uh, her hunger strike. And in the studio, we have the co-founder of the Delawareans for Palestinian Human Rights, Mike Abel. And we have the comms director uh, from Delaware DSA, Sajil Ashraf. Um, Sajil also has a podcast called Call Me Beta, and we'll link to all that. Um, we recorded this on Tuesday, and at the time, I was very worried. I, I hadn't heard back from our friend from September, uh, Maya Abu Al-Hayat uh, in Jerusalem, and I was you know, worried about it. And then this morning, I woke up to um, read something from a a U.N., Uh, Excuse me, a a U.N. advisor and a um, a former head of uh, the Human Rights Watch from 93 to 2002, Kenneth Roth. Um, He was just giving some numbers about Palestinian detention. Um, As you've noticed during the pause, um, hostages are being swapped back and forth. But as fast as um, the Israelis are releasing Palestinian hostages, um, they're detaining more Palestinians. Uh, there's about two hundred there's about two thousand Palestinians in what they call administrative detention. So there's no charges and no trial. Um, most of the people will face military trials uh, because there's very little due process. It's part of the apartheid system where citizens get you know regular due process like we would get, uh, but Palestinians um, basically get military trials with a nearly a hundred percent conviction rate. I think the last time I saw, I think maybe in the last five years, two people were acquitted from these military trials. Um, There is many, many instances of torture. um, And just protesting, just holding up a flag can get you um, put in the dungeon by the Israeli authorities. So I want people to to understand really sort of what's happening. Um, But the good news is I was lucky to wake up today also uh, with an update uh, from Maya uh, in my email which I was obviously extremely happy to get. Um, I had let her know that um, Medina had become sort of a national figure uh, for, re- for the resistance here and that more is planned um, here, uh, but that my friends and I were ill with concern is how I put it uh, for her and her family. And uh, I was just happy to get word from her this morning, and I'll read it to you all. Hello, Robert. I am happy to hear from you. Please listen and share the stories of Palestinian prisoners who are tortured and beaten. The conditions there are terrifying. They are left alone and nobody can reach them. The conditions here are the same. Anybody can be killed at any moment with no consequences. Be strong for us, Maya. Comrades and friends, hello, uh, we're in the shadow of Rockford Tower, we're behind enemy lines, we're in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, and this is your Highlands Bunker Podcast. Um, I'm, I'm kind of jazzed up tonight because we have a lot of stuff going on here, um, so let's just get to it. Um, over, over Zoom, patched in, <coughs> is our friend Medina. Um, are you still in D.C., or are you on the train?
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm on the train in the station at Union Station, and I'm. Uh, I got some hot hot hands in my hands. I'm trying to warm up. <laughs> my hands are cold. My nose is very cold. But I'm here, and I'm glad to be joining you all.
0: Well, we're gonna get to you in in one moment. If you see coons on the train and you bird dog them, get off mute. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, I saw I saw it quick aside. I saw um, Max Rose on the train on the way down here, and I looked him up. And I saw he's no longer an elected official, so I, I let him go.
0: <laughs>
1: but I was ready. I was ready.
0: <laughs> In the studio, um, first we have the co-founder of Delawareans for Palestinian Human Rights, our Mike Abel. Um, Mike, hello.
2: Yes. Hi.
0: Thank you so much for coming.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: I'm excited because like, I know you don't do a lot of like public things. Right. Um, and then Medina and I were talking and she was like, oh, oh I, 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 I can talk to her because it's not like that. Yes. So I'm, I, I'm uh, very uh, humbled and happy to have you. Thank oh, you. Oh, well, coming.
2: thank you so much, Rob. Uh,
0: also tonight, new to the area, as we were saying, uh, Sajil Asif, uh, Ashraf, she's with the Delaware DSA. She's also has a podcast, which I don't know if we're going to plug or we're not going to plug. Yeah, we
3: can plug it. Because that's... <laughs>
0: It's call me beta. We'll plug it again. Yeah. Oh, there's too much competition out these podcasts. Yeah. It's someone a really good goes, one. What's I that? It. It's that was a good? I
1: love her podcast. Yeah, she won't plug it, and I I would tell everyone who wants to learn about foreign policy, domestic affairs, and wants to fall in love with her amazing Abu and Chachu to check it out.
3: My Dad and my uncle, yeah, thanks, patina. I get shy, so I don't, that's why. that's the reason I don't that's well I will it. tell you this
0: so when i when I saw that you had a podcast too, the first thing I thought was, this is going to be hilarious because I'm gonna play it up like the market's saturated um, but then I clicked on it and I saw that the photo, and I could tell it was like a family photo on on the on the Twitter, and I was like, "Oh my God, it's adorable, <laughs> so I couldn't even get mad at it.
1: <laughs>
3: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I I think that's why I put a baby picture of myself. So if people direct hate at me, they're gonna have to direct hate at the baby. It's definitely yeah.
0: Joining us as always is K. Foster Stomberg. Carl's here. Um, actually doing a lot of work tonight. We like to point that out. He's got the camera. He's got people patched in over Zoom. The monitors are on, so we can hear Medina, uh, and we can also hear each other. It's a, it's 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 an operation over here. Is what I'm trying to say. So if you'd like to, you know, kick in. Two bucks, five bucks a month—you know how to do it. Um, I I wanted to meet um both of you after the the demonstration and the march we had down Barley Mill Road a few weeks ago, but before I do that, um, Medina, we just want to do like a like a checkup because uh, yesterday we ran in the call um, the fact that you've announced with a a group of uh, advocates and activists. Um, a hunger strike for a ceasefire in Gaza, a permanent ceasefire. Um, how are you doing? Uh, are you hungry? Are you cold? Are your lips still chapped? Uh, what's happening?
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I'm on the train and I'm, I'm like thawing out, I guess is the word. Um, I'm not doing terrible. I was running a little late for the train and I had to, do a little jog to not miss it, and I haven't quite caught my breath yet. So, I think that's probably a, a effect of the hunger strike. But um, being surrounded by people of conscience of all backgrounds, religion, um, organizations has been really heartwarming. And so I'm I'm feeling full. Um, my heart's feeling full being around amazing people getting to know people i've met through zoom in real life finally um and i think each day we're having more people show up uh my uber driver on the way to the train station i mentioned what i was doing DC, and he was like oh i saw that on the news yesterday isn't isn't that lady from sex in the city didn't she join you guys wow. um <laughs> and so she ran
0: for governor as well just for for, for, for...
1: she did she did then he was like it's so nice to know which which uh, celebrities, you know, I should support and we had a really nice little conversation about it. So I think it's reaching more people. And, you know, the point of, of all of this is to bring attention to what's going on and try to get Biden to, um, you know, work to get a permanent ceasefire. So I think we're getting a lot of media attention, and I'm hoping that that'll add to the public pressure that's been sustained now for a month and a half or so. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm happy to be joining you guys tonight and cannot wait to put my head on my pillow when I get home.
0: Well, uh, I, I want to point everybody in the direction of an interview you did uh, online with Chuck Modi yesterday. Um, maybe we'll, we'll cut in here at the end of it because, you know, you go through, you know, why it's important to exert pressure on Biden. Um, what is really happening here and why it needs to stop. Um, but uh, you, you really you you really mic dropped it. Like I, I when I saw it I thought this your you all of that like stand up work that you've done is completely paying off because you murdered it out there. You murdered it and you know, do what you want with that. Is
1: there anything you'd like to add? Uh, I'm not voting for Biden until it changes. So do with that what you will.
0: Incredible move. Just incredible. I, I must have watched it twenty five times last night. Showing Susan, I'm sending it to everybody.
1: Well, shout out to Chuck Modi for uh, great street journalism. And he, he made me feel very comfortable. We were having just the conversation. So I think that's part of why. Um, but, yeah, we've had quite a few folks come out um, each day from different news agencies. We've had um, Russians show up. We've had Turkish agencies.
0: Well, thank you. Um, I'm glad you can stay on. And like I said, if anything good happens on the train... You know call call code red we'll record it uh so first uh before we start talking about general stuff, uh, Mike yes, can you give a little bit about your background? We were talking a little bit about it before and I don't know how much we recorded, but um you know where you grew up, um what it was like, and how you became someone who wanted to sort of organize people for, for a cause, like in, in public? How did that happen?
2: Sure. So I guess I classify myself as a tri-cultural kid. Um, I was born in Wilmington, and then at age three, I went to Columbia, South America, and lived there for about six to seven years. Um, and to give you a little background on my ancestry, Uh, My mother's parents were from a very small Christian village called Bejala, which is in Palestine. And in the early 1900s, they emigrated to Latin America. This was right after, you know, the Ottoman Empire and the crumbling of the Ottoman Empire. And there was a huge emigration of, they called them Arabs, Turks, and Jews to South America. So my grandparents were part of that. Arab Christians. Arab Christians, gotcha. yes. Yep. And they ended up in a very small village called Arakataka Magdalena. So I experienced um, that, that childhood surrounded by indigenous people. And also on our block, we had uh, merchants that were Arabs, Turks, and Jews. And everybody coexisted.
0: How big, how big was the place? Oh, like, what, what very, was
2: very small. I was going to say. It but... was like maybe three blocks and there was a church down the street and, okay. you know, talking like a,
0: cattle like a town. bathing in the of middle a, of the street. As was a Latin American town.
2: Yes, yeah. yes, very much so. yeah. yeah. Um, so I lived there, and then my father came to Columbia and said, you know, it's time to go home. This this kid needs an education. So we came back to Wilmington, Delaware. And with having immigrant parents, um, my dad is from Ramallah, Palestine, which is a much bigger city. Um, he was educated in the Quaker school. He was born, like, in 1910. And he ended up in Wilmington, Delaware, because his brother had an Oriental rug company in Wilmington. So my father was working with him, and I started working in the business when I was about nine years old, because my father went out on his own to do his own little, you know, rug company. And my recollection is that every weekend was a party it was, this is the way I was raised. And it was also a halfway house. So we had the best of both worlds. Because we had Palestinians coming in from Latin America. And we had Palestinians coming in, you know, from from the Middle East. And my father took it upon himself um, to, you know, entertain them. And help them, you know, get apartments and, you know, try to secure jobs for them. So it was a Latin flavor and it was a Palestinian flavor. But what's interesting is that it really was not political. And there were three languages in my household. There was English, Spanish, and Arabic. And Arabic was the silent language that was used with with my parents so there wasn't a whole lot of Arabic except for cuss words but the cuisine was amazing and we would have people come and my father would say you need to go clean your room I said why do I need to clean my room well because uncle Farid is coming for dinner I said but he's not gonna come in my room he said oh no he's staying for a year so <laughs> this, is, this is how I grew up. So it was very interesting. Um, also, you know, with my father having his own business, and he became successful in his business, he was so busy being an American that he really did not um, highlight his background. As being Palestinian. That's a classic American. It is.
0: It is. Cla- it that, is. Especially at that time. Right. That's the classic American story. Right? Exactly. Every sort of reactionary American and you know, business person right. wanted to be like right. American, whatever that was.
2: So my, my immersion into being a Palestinian was really all the... Um, engagement that I had with cousins, with aunts, with uncles, and we had our own little world. So I really, you know, I don't want to belabor this, but my aha moment um, where I really became educated was in my 40s. And how did that happen? My mother had passed away. And I decided, you know, I'm Palestinian, I really need to understand my roots, where I came from. And I joined a delegation of um, Arab American women and Jewish American women through the Middle East Children's Alliance out of Berkeley. And there was a three-week delegation, and I went on this delegation, and it was like in 1991. And it was the first time that I was in that region um, and that was truly uh, a moment for me in going to the refugee camps um, really seeing the manifestation of the settlements and the colonization that was going on. So you're in the West Bank? I was in the West Bank Bank. Mm -hmm. and I was also in Israel. We actually went to the Knesset and we met with the Labor Party. Uh, We met with Israeli, you know, human rights activists. So that was that piece there. But I want to take you to 1984. Um, I got married in 84, and I married this wonderful, wonderful Jewish American man. And we decided we were going to take the kids to Israel and Palestine, which we did. We merged families.
0: Married, merged families. Yes going to do the yes we're gonna we're gonna go home we're
2: gonna go and check it out so it was a little bit of a um you know a fun tour and it was all through israel and we had a wonderful tour guide and i questioned him and i said well you know i would really like to go to the west bank and he said oh i don't think so i said but you know i have to be able to get into the west bank i really want to go see family So, um, I left the group with my daughter, and my husband was very supportive, and the driver, his name was Elon, said, I can take you to a certain point, and then I have to hand you over to somebody else. I said, yeah, I said, no problem. He said, I can only, I can't cross over because, you know, I may not be able to get out. And and again, there was a lot of fear that was going on. So... um, He dropped us off. My daughter and I were walking the streets of Ramallah. I'm asking questions. Where does the Mikhail family live? And we ended up at my father's cousin's house. And I met all my cousins who I've never met in my whole life. And at that dinner, there was this lovely woman, my cousin, second cousin. And we were getting into a conversation. And her name was Hanan Ashrawi. Um, she was a political activist, um, absolutely brilliant. And she gave me a 101 in the occupation in one afternoon. Nice. She um, was like, have you heard about she, the Balfour? Yes. This is
3: literally like Yasser Arafat's number
2: two. This, yes. Yeah. So yeah. Hanan Ashwadi is also, um the only female that was part of the Madrid Peace Conference and she was very very influential but again she was Christian she was woman and they sort of you know kept her behind the scenes so that was quite an education for me and that was another aha moment Um, and then after that um, I came back in the 90s and I started doing I was asked to do presentations on my eyewitnessing and what I did I was in Gaza I stayed in refugee camps um, I met the most humble beautiful kind people um, throughout the West Bank and Gaza and I really thought gee I could come back and tell my story well I tried to tell my story um, and I was invited into a, you know, a Jewish community to talk, and I think it was very, very hard for them to listen, and that didn't go well. So then there was another audience at a retirement home, and I did a presentation there, and that went well. And I was working twenty four seven in healthcare administration, so it's not like I could just, you know, give up everything I was doing to become, you know, a full time human rights activist. But I stayed plugged in. And then when I left healthcare in 2008 and nine, I joined a diplomatic delegation with the Council of National Interest, which was out of DC. So who were these people? Um, It was a conglomeration of retired foreign service diplomats, uh, ex-ambassadors to different Middle East countries, Uh, and also Harriet Fulbright from the Fulbright Scholarship Program. So there were 12 of us on this tour. We visited five Arab countries, and we also um, were sponsored by the UN to spend time in Gaza. And a few of us, because of our medical background, visited medical facilities. And um, being that Harriet Fulbright was with us, we actually spent a lot of time with Fulbright students in Gaza who could not get out, and absolutely brilliant, brilliant individuals. Um, and we were there right after the cas led operation. So we were there in May of 2009, and, you know, we saw the remnants of the bombings, and it was just really very, very sad. And yeah, we I think landed- it's
0: important to mention... We've talked a little bit about it, and I've referenced books about it, uh, like the Halidi book. Um, but this is another wave of just devastating action against Gaza. Yes, th- this has happened, um, you know, uh, over and over again through the 2000s to now. You know, different waves of this. Right. Called Mowing the La Lawn.
2: Right. So um, that was quite that was quite a uh, that was quite a trip, and. We went to all these different countries, and we met with high-profile people. Um, And we ended up in um, Lebanon, in Beirut, and we were at the Sabra Shatila refugee camps. And that was was another eye-opener to see all these displaced people, not only from 48 and 67, but sitting down with academics who could do they could not pursue their dreams. These were physicians, different healthcare workers, you know, therapists. They couldn't get jobs because they had no citizenship. And to get a job in, in Lebanon, you have to have working papers. You have to be a citizen. And they were not just citizens. So that was really sad. Um, we were in Syria. We were in um, Jordan. Uh, we were actually also in Israel. We spent some time in Israel speaking to, um, you know, government people. So after that trip, um, I came back and I felt really, really isolated. And I really wanted to do more. And I had left healthcare. care. I retired. So... I really couldn't find anything, and I ended up talking to the people in Washington, the Council of National Interest, so I served on their board, and I went back and forth to D.C., and then that really got old, um, and in 2011, I decided to create my own experience and work assignment on my own, and I... Um, I went back to Ramallah, I rented an apartment, I stayed there for four months, I did an immersion in in Arabic, I met with NGOs, I observed the work that they did, Um, I went to refugee camps, I went to different universities, and it was an amazing, amazing, enriching experience for me. So I came back in 2011 and I met up with a group of um, faith leaders who were all involved with churches for Middle East Peace. And I said, oh, well, you know, maybe this would work out. So they asked me if I would do presentations. So I started doing presentations at different churches. And I could see that um, it was very neutral ground. And I had to watch what I was the message that I was trying to deliver. So there were a group of us that decided, you know, we need a political arm, we need to do something. So my co-founder and I decided that we were going to start our own organization which was Delaware Neighbors Against the Occupation. And A lot of faith leaders joined us and lay people joined us and we were maybe a group of about 30 people and our work was congressional advocacy Uh, and then my son-in-law got involved and said you know this is really good stuff you need to you need better branding you need a better name Um, You need something a little more user-friendly, so we switched our names, I guess, in like 2014 to Delawareans for Palestinian Human Rights, and we are on our way of being 12 years old. Um, We have a core group of about 30 to 40 people. Um, Because of Medina's, she is quite the influencer. What has happened between October 7th and now, our email list subscription has like tripled and we are now looking at how we're shifting to things and becoming more and more active and the beauty of all this is that we really got introduced to um, the youth movement the, and the youth movement movement is unbelievable and to go back to you know the protest and everything that medina did and meeting sigil through you know the dsa and being with people that are you know so energized it it really was a huge influence for me and the work that i do
0: that's such a great segue because that it's a fascinating story um and also, you're going to have, like, a great perspective on sort of what I wanted to talk about with Sigil and, and, and as a younger activist coming from outside. But, like, yeah, give you a little background, too, and, and like, who you are and how you got involved with the DSA here.
3: Yeah. Um. So I, uh, um, I, I think for me, Palestine—I uh, come from a Pakistani family, and Pakistanis are very famously pro-Palestine. Like— Throughout, as, as, as students for justice in Palestine, throughout many chapters, you'll see a lot of Pakistanis on the boards. Um, the uh, famously, I was a Pakistani Air Force pilot that was like the only one to shoot down Israeli like fighter jets in the sixty seven war, like. But that wasn't why I got into it. Weirdly enough, in um, uh, when I was in middle school, I believe Oprah decided to make Elie Wiesel's Night her like book club book. Which, looking back, is ironic for a couple of reasons. One of which is that Elie Wiesel lied in his memoir, but the Holocaust itself was very real. And so they, our teachers in middle school, they basically decided to do this whole unit on Holocaust studies, um, and it, we mostly focused on the, you know, the, the European Nazi Holocaust. And mostly on what happened to the Jewish people. But we, you know, we did talk about what happened to Armenians, what happened to gay people, people with disabilities. And then we went on to talk about other genocides, Rwanda um, and, you know, here and there. And I was just, I was so affected by it. And I remember we even had like a little essay contest at the end and I like won third place. But then at the end of this whole unit, all of our teachers, like our our language arts teacher and then our his, like our social studies teacher and then our science teacher, each of them did like a presentation kind of relating to their subject or something they were interested, like for us, like as kind of like a finale, like about, you know, the Holocaust. And our social studies teacher, uh, Mr. Gray, who I guess has honestly changed my life with what he did. He basically was like, well, I want to talk about what happened to the Jewish people after the Holocaust. And I was completely like, well, yeah, what happened? Because, you know, when you, you feel this sense of, like, hopelessness and, and you know, indignant, feeling indignant and all that that this happened. So I was very, you know, interested that, yeah. well, where did they go from there? And that's when he very objectively started to talk about what happened with Palestine. And as his presentation went on, I was just horrified. Especially because, and I'll admit, like, I am Muslim. So, like, the fact that the majority of the Palestinians are Muslim, uh, that kind of hit on a personal level as well. Um, and, uh, when I went back to my family and I was like, yo, and they were all like, where have you been? You know? <laughs> Cause like I said, most, uh, most Muslims, most Pakistanis especially tend to be very pro Palestine. So then fast forward to when I was in college, my sophomore year, um, I ran, I came across, uh, Ranjitan actually, I think Medina was working with her the other day on this hunger strike. She had started up students for justice in Palestine at Rutgers and Rutgers uh, University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And I ended up being on that founding executive board, and my whole rest of the time that I was at Rutgers, I was with SJP. Um, Notably, we kicked off the BDS, Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions movement, on campus. Uh, Our Hillel is pretty strong, because in general, Hillel chapters across the country get a lot of money from the central Hillel. And then also, there was a, a local... I need to look and find his name. There was a local... Person that would also give them another million dollars a year. So we were like up against a behemoth, and yet we somehow I think managed to freak them out enough that like, I remember a year, like the next year, they were building a whole big Hillel house. And we already had like a Chabad house and everything. Like there was already, there's a lot of really great, like Rutgers is great, there's a big Jewish community, a big Muslim community, like we had that. But very much you could see that the Hillel people on campus were not happy that we were doing what we were doing.
0: Yeah, I think <clears throat> you hit that idea just like you did about like a an epiphany, like an aha. Mm-hmm. Yours was more you know your family's from there and you had an experience where you served. You you sort of had a great high school teacher.
3: Yeah, middle school teacher, middle yeah. Middle school teacher. Honestly, yeah.
0: yeah. Um I I've been telling people this and I think I mentioned this on one of the patrons only episodes, but I'll mention it now. Our neighbor here uh is a retired doctor and she uh, very active, runs all this stuff. And she's just a real cool sort of liberal person. <clears throat> and uh, I actually borrowed her flagpole when I took the flag out to the to the, uh, the demonstration. And so we got to talking about it. We had dinner that week. And she said, you know, I feel like everything I've been told about Israel my whole life is wrong. And I said, oh, you know, a lot of r- regular people are coming to that conclusion um, because the... You know the, the the game was strong. You know they had they had a, I mean even Zionism, if you know your history, had a head start in the late 19th century. Um, but people are starting to come to that realization. But my question was going to be because there's a huge push from younger people. But Mike, you have a you. What is your feeling on giving sort of talks about this in the 90s? Giving you know doing different kinds of work in the 2000s, like you probably have a feeling of just the regular person's sort of um, awakening to this issue, how they're receiving the stuff that you're telling them, that you've been telling them for 30 years or whatever. Um, How's it hitting you? I mean, are you seeing more, are people sort of coming to a conclusion or, or are you still getting as much pushback as you ever have?
2: I am seeing a whole shift because of the youth movement, a, a different, it, it's its just amazing um, how, you know, I've been at this for almost 30 years and just seeing what is taking place now on campus, you know, in, um, you know, all these young people and their organizations and all these, you know, the larger grassroots organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace and the U.S. Campaign and, you know, American Muslims for Palestine, it has become, and also the Palestinian youth movement, it has become, um, I feel, very, very successful. And part of it is the messaging and the social media
3: social media yeah. social
2: media has changed the game it has changed the whole game in a very positive way yeah i mean you cannot
0: deny the fact that and you know we've made jokes about it i'm not gonna make a joke about it but the israeli propaganda game is so weak because of social media uh people i think are starting to explore more history they're like, "Well, what's going on here? Yeah, this doesn't look right."
3: Once you start to look at the facts, they're probably you realize just how weak the propaganda yeah, is. Yeah, you're like, yeah. "Well, this doesn't
0: this doesn't make any yeah. sense." Yeah. And and uh, I think people are starting to starting to come to that. And and and, and I'm <clears throat> I've talked about in here, you know, I had sort of my a lot of my political nascent political thought when I was like a uh, high school and college student uh, was about Africa. South Africa, specifically at that time, because of man that was like a, you know, you start learning about like, man, that in prison, but now he's good. Wait a minute, what's happening now? You know, and and you know, you sort of see how these things work. How you know you're told for reasons that uh, somebody's a terrorist, and you're told for reasons that you know we got we got to do it like this. But as you start to see it, you're like, that's not that's not right. And and I think you can't deny that social media has been a big part of that.
2: Huge. Huge part of it. And especially with, you know, these brave journalists that are reporting every day out of Gaza, doing the best they can with whatever allocation of time and connectivity that they have. And so many have been murdered. they're Yeah,
3: while they're being targeted. While they're being targeted.
2: That's right, Sigil. So they are getting the word out they are doing the reporting they are sending the images and that's that's powerful absolutely powerful and i think the other big thing is you know with the the american public i don't think they have any idea where taxpayer money is going With all the US military aid that we are sending to Israel. But, in, you know, with the presentations that I have done, not only to university students, but also to adult education, when you break down the numbers and you actually people see it in black and white where their money is going, where their taxpayer money is going. It's like, you know, a click goes off and they 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 start to get it. And I think right now the big push is, you know, between the monies for Ukraine and the monies that we are, you know, sending to to Israel. People are starting to question this.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of the way that I present like, okay, what's it for? Let's just take one step back what what are what are we getting out of it and when you start to tell like some fanciful story about somebody defending themselves you're like well that's i can see that's not happening so yeah it's 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 brought to stark relief to sort of waste uh, it is for for a slaughter you know for an idea that you know we got sort of got caught up in you know i've been talking about the history i was so uh i'm going to brag to you guys a little bit I haven't told this story yet, but so I'm, I'm, my, I'm the second, I'm, a, I'm almost finished the second way through the Khalidi book, uh, the hundred years war against Palestine.
3: Yeah. yeah, I just bought it. So
0: I was talking to somebody at the pub down here during the football game and I realized that like four or five different people were sort of listening to what I was saying. And then somebody walked over and somebody said, no, no, he's, 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 he's talking about this. And I was like, oh no, this is boring. I'm sorry. Cause we're at the pub and stuff. He's like, no, no, go on. So, I, you know, I went, you know, I gave them, the, the, you know, the full, the full story about the, the, I'm talking about the Nakba and stuff at the at the <laughs> at the pub. Um, so people are um, they want to know what they're seeing. They can see it's wrong and they're like, well, this there's got to be what the hell's happening here. And so I do see a, a, a big desire for that.
3: Um, actually, so like kind of so if I could just add a little bit about DSA and stuff, but that's actually Palestine is very radicalizing. And that's how I became a leftist. And I, I eventually, like I, um, we, I, I think it was like in twenty thirteen twenty. Like I, while I was in college, I kind of got involved with Socialist Alternative. I ended up leaving because of their actually because of their stance on Palestine. But eventually, I found my way into DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, when I was living in New York. Um, and it was it's not a coincidence. Uh, that a lot of the biggest National players right now that are pro Palestine are part of dSA. uh, you know, that's definitely not a coincidence. um and these all of these things are connected right? like it's the re- you know we we talk about how why why is you know why is Israel getting singled out? Well, I mean, we single Israel out by giving them so much of our money, like you know, um in the first place and and it ends up you end up seeing how it connected it is that our own we're not we don't have money for our own country and we're giving money here. And then, you know, what is, what is this like, what is it, like? you know, then you have to to have the conversation about American imperialism and, and how that effect that's had on like on the world and stuff. And so sometimes like I know uh, Mike and I have had this conversation in certain groups, I have to hold back like the full like workers of the world unite stuff, but it really, it's all connected. It really is. Um, And and Palestine is a great way, a a great lens to look at so many other issues in the world and vice versa. When you're coming from other uh, perspectives, like, you know, it's it it just makes a lot of a lot of sense. Um, And and and, and what you were saying about journalism, the journalism and the journalists. what I also wanted to make a point. So I am a journalist by by. uh, uh, training um, I, I'm
0: a, i I'm a fake journalist and have no training
3: yeah, so I'm I know Self, and self-taught unfortunately. I'm also a uh, Canary mission profile so I've been uh,
0: Congratulations.
3: <laughs> uh, the, well, yeah, I mean people say that but then like I, that's basically the reason I haven't gotten a the news jobs that I wanted I worked as like a travel and lifestyle editor for three years and it drove me nuts <laughs> because this is what this is the kind of stuff I wanted to do um, and Seeing like because the uh, whole Western, you know, machine of like mass—it's so hard to break through it. Yeah, and, we're fa- still,
0: and, and, and that's funny too. As as much as we can say about this this great sort of movement that sparked up, and that you have three times as many just people yeah, follow yeah. what's happening. And you know, we had a great turnout uh, for the Barley Mill uh, Biden House mm-hmm. thing, but you know, it's still there. I mean,
3: they're they're not moving. They're not. It's, it's still there. Yeah. Uh,
0: on one hand, and I think you mentioned this before. You do have to be careful about talking about Zionism when you're talking about, like, Jewish people. And I think you got to – it's pretty easy to suss out, but you definitely have to keep an eye on that yeah. move. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, other than that, I think the tide is – I think you, you're able to at least speak to people about what's happening in a clear way. If you just give a few caveats, like these are not complicated – uh this it's really is not. this and this is that. It's really not. Uh, yeah, and it's not and, and it isn't. I, so I, I I am um heartened to know that it seems to be breaking apart a little bit and and there are, people are more open to like hearing what's happening.
3: Yeah, like you said history is on our side. I, one um I know uh, I think Verso Books had it for free on uh, as an ebook. I hope they still do, but Elon Pape is an Israeli historian. That's really big. His 10 myths about Israel. I'm almost done with it. And it, for, like, you, like you just said, we have to be careful about equating Judaism and Zionism. And he does a really good job of outlining that it was never like from the beginning. Zionism was very much an extremist Christian movement. Like the fact that we have a, such a big people like to talk about, hey, fun fact, all the Christians that support Israel in America are like, want all the Jews to die. That's how this started. That's how that's, that's what Zionism is.
0: Yeah. I mean they, Zionism yeah. was an idea that started in Europe. It was yeah. fomented uh, basically in the United States. Um,
3: in in Britain, in England first. And in Britain uh, and yeah. of
0: course. Well yeah. and of course then after so yeah. And then after World War One, when when Britain then would, would take over the the Ottoman Empire and, mm-hmm. and have the Palestine mandate then it just it just fits this this movement this sort of western movement fits perfectly into a british empire yeah, sort of scheme
3: exactly and and, and that's uh, it that was the start of it and basically the us just took over as as the as Correct. the major empire of the world that's it's just that continuation and yeah. we talked to you you know you mentioned the nakba and stuff and this is one of the things that i'm kind of it's weird i i wish i knew more back when i was doing like sjp work but when i once i'm, now I'm going back further in my history and i'm realizing that this whole Colonial project of displacing and frankly killing Palestinians and pushing them out. This was before World War II. They were already doing this, starting in like the right after World War like World War One around then.
0: Yeah, I mean, and the I'm, the in in the precepts of Zionism, there in in a, in a letter that Herzl sent, said that the people that are will be spirited away. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, that's a cool, I mean, it's a euphemism, I guess, but that, that's what's, that's what's
3: happened. Uh, her, looking at, so Theodore Herzl is, uh, for anyone who is not aware, he's the, you know, he was a Jewish uh, v, like, guy from Vienna. Um, and he was very much, he's considered the modern, like, founder of the modern Zionist movement. They declare the state of Israel underneath the portrait of him and everything. But when you look at his writings, it's so, he's so blunt about it. Like, he literally is writing to Cecil Rhodes like the colonizers of all colonizers saying, "Hey, um, could you help me out here? Because I think you're gonna like my project here, where I'm bringing in Europeans and pushing out brown people." And he like he was very self aware of it, and it's it just it's it's amazing how much of the the writing is there in the British archives and the Israeli archives, and now that we all have access to it, like not just social media, but just the age of information. The fact well, that's that all pop pa- that's Pope's all work.
0: To Poppy's yeah. work is about. A bunch of declassified documents yes. in the '80s that came to light, yes. and then he starts reading them and thinking, like, hey,
2: yeah. yeah, I
0: mean, all all of that declassified stuff from the '30s, from the uprisings and stuff, you know, and and and, and he had a, you know, that's his body of work, really, and
3: it, it's very telling that he was basically driven out of Israel, yeah, like, that's right, yeah, with his
0: work. Sure. Well, <clears throat> here's here's the here's the part I want to get to. So, <clears throat> I, I, I I had our uh, our crack team of support staff, pull this for me. Um, and it's I, I feel like it's very uh, relevant to, to Medina what what you're on a hunger strike for and what everybody there in D.C. <clears throat> is sort of demanding Joe Biden do. Uh, so I found this uh, article, this was on A1, the front page of the New York Times, <clears throat> on August 13th, 1982. Uh, it is called, the the, the headline is, uh, Reagan Demands End to Attacks in a Blunt mm-hmm. Telephone Call with Begin yep. by Bernard Weinrob. I wanted to read a little bit of it and we can like, talk about it <clears throat> because, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about, you know, what the president can do and can't do and what should be public and what should be behind the scenes and what should be propaganda. So let's just, let's just get to it. Reagan demands end to attacks and blunt telephone call to Begin, Washington, August 12th. President Reagan expressed, quote, outrage to Prime Minister Menachem Begin today over Israel's latest bombing raids in West Be- Beirut, saying the attacks had resulted in, quote, needless destruction and bloodshed, unquote. It was the sharpest statement by Mr. Reagan since the start of the Israeli invasion of Lebanon nine weeks ago. Larry Speaks, the deputy White House press secretary, said Mr. Reagan had been, quote, shocked by the Israeli attacks on West Beirut. Mr. Reagan voiced his feelings directly to Mr. Begin, according to Mr. Speaks. Mr. Speaks said the Israeli action had threatened the efforts by Philip C. Habib, special American envoy to Lebanon to end the fighting in Lebanon and arrange the withdrawal of 6,000 to 9,000 Palestinian guerrillas trapped in West Beirut. In the last 48 hours, Mr. Habib's peace plan seemed on the verge of success. This is, again, from uh, Larry Speaks. This is a quote. The president expressed his outrage over the latest round of massive military action, Mr. Speaks said earlier this afternoon. He emphasized that Israel's actions uh, halted Ambassador Habib's negotiations for a peaceful resolution of the Beirut crisis when they were just to the point of success. The result has been more needless destruction and bloodshed. Mr. Speaks, when asked if Mr. Reagan had shouted at at the Prime Minister, declined to comment. So, that's Ronald Reagan, folks. That's a Ronald Reagan presidency. Should we be should we be demanding Biden at least like get to that level?
3: Yeah,
2: that's uh, we, what we're working on.
3: We we actually talked about that conversation on my podcast a couple episodes ago, and um, I, can, I wish I can find it. And if someone hears this and knows where to look, but there's an anecdote that when Reagan hung up that phone call, like that confirmed that they had done the ceasefire, he kind of turned to like you know one of his aides or secretaries or whatever and just said like I didn't realize. I had that much power over the situation, and and there's so many other like we people have to realize that very much. So as as the empire, first it was England, now it's us. It, it's very you know this whole conspiracy theory is about oh Israel runs America, yada yada. It's wrong. It's at worst anti-Semitic, and it's the other way around. If anything, like you know this whole project of Israel is very much serves colonialism and imperialism, and you know. Like the global capitalist, which is why I always go on and on, Like you know, in the DSA spectre, spectrum, I'm very focused on that because it's very connected. But, you know, we, th- this is so like, it. What, this is the reason we have to fight. We are in the, not, you said belly of the beast here in Delaware, but as Americans, we are in the belly of the beast of this whole global empire where they're doing this everywhere. But Palestine is just that, like that linchpin, that nexus of so much of, of this mess. <laughs> yeah. There's one
0: more little piece I'll read because I think there's a few uh, interesting tidbits in that in here that could be, you know, could be relevant to our present discussion. Uh, So this is a little more detail from a official statement sent out by the White House. um, And it's under a column called Unusually Blunt Statement. Officials denied, and it's from the same uh, article. Officials denied reports from Israel that Mr. Reagan had warned Mr. Begin that Mr. Habib would return to Washington if the raids continued. The unusually blunt White House statement said, quote, The president was shocked this morning when he learned of the news of heavy Israeli bombardment of West Beirut. As a result, the president telephoned Prime Minister Begin concerning the most recent bombings and shellings of Beirut. The statement said Mr. Reagan then quote, expressed his outrage. Quote, he emphasized that Israel's actions halted Ambassador Habib's negotiations for a peaceful resolution of the Beirut crisis when they were at a point of success. The statement continued, the results had been uh, more needless destruction and bloodshed. Quote, the president made clear that it is imperative that the ceasefire in place be observed absolutely in order for negotiations to proceed. We understand the Israeli cabinet has approved a new ceasefire, which is in effect, it must hold. Asked if Mr. Reagan had threatened to suspend American arms, aid, or take other retaliation, Mr. Speaker replied, "I won't discuss that," and also declined to discuss Mr. Begin's response. So, uh, you know, I-, I think that's the that's the very least we can ask for. That's like a pretty low bar. You know, that's not that's not exactly you know that's not exactly a bastion of human rights. You know, Ronald Reagan. You know, ask any ask anybody you know ask any any priest in Central America that was trying to like help poor people what they think of it. So It's not exactly like a great dude. So that's like the that's the minimum. I think that yeah, we're looking for
3: it It shows how far right to the right. We've gone on this issue Yeah,
0: Yeah, and, and again, I think it's more as time went on and this is something you experience in real time As time went on, you know, some people were a little more receptive um, But the story you know the story of Zionism entrenches itself um, certainly you know, it's very, very, very easy to manipulate public opinion about what is terrorism and what is armed resistance. We've seen it with Mandela. Uh, we've seen it with you know, me- I I've t- I've belabored this point. I'm not gonna belabor it anymore. Um, but it's something that we've we've experienced in real time. So it it takes a little it, it takes a little unraveling for sure. Um, but I'm I'm so happy that People have really taken it up. It's actually happening. Like after all of this time, I feel like it's
2: happening. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we. I listened to this poet Richard Medhurst today, and we actually put it on the Delphic Current reporting. And it's a poem, uh, and it's called, you know, enough. You got to listen to it. It's it's amazing, and people are seeing what is happening. People are they're they're speechless well I shouldn't say speechless some of us are speechless when we look at these images and what is happening but the world is seeing this look at all the protests all over the world look at these soccer players coming out with flags on in different countries there is so much support for this Palestinian cause, but our U.S. government is so connected to the Israeli government that how do you, how do you break that? You know, we have a very, very strong um, Israeli lobby that has a lot of power within our own government, And how do you break through that? How do you break through all the propaganda? How do you break through uh, the millions of dollars that are being thrown at candidates, candidates uh, so that they are on the right side, meaning that, you know, we're gonna give you this support and we are going to help you, you know, money-wise with this campaign, but these are the guidelines.
0: Yeah, I mean, we saw it this week. It's basically like bribery. Yes, you know, trying to get people to challenge yes. Ilhan, Omar. Ilhan Omar and and not and, and 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 speaking of politicians and and activists who need support, um, not everybody can be cool and go on Chapo Trap House.
3: Yeah, <laughs> like Medina. Not
0: everybody can be cool and do a uh, hunger strike uh, at the White House. Right. But people can support Medina and people like Medina absolutely for sure. She's out there in the street. She's out there. Yeah, there's no question about it. So, Dina, take your accolades. We love you.
1: I mean, you're right. We can't all do, you know, the same things. We all have different skills and talents. Um, but what I will say is I'm I'm able to do the job that I'm doing because of my constituents. Um, and they reach out and they tell me that they support me and they love what I do. And that helps me keep going. Um, and that's my role, right? as a legislator, But there's a space for every single one of us in this movement and, and in any movement for human lives. Mm-hmm. Um so i I mean, I would just kind of reemphasize what you said, Rob. I think for folks who are listening who feel like, you know, I don't know if I feel comfortable speaking up on this. I don't know enough. you know, you got to you gotta get connected with Delaware and city and human Rights because they're doing a lot of really educational programming that can help you figure out, you know, how to feel comfortable having these conversations and it's it's understandable that people are anxious about these kind of conversations because it can know, and also there's so much hatred and there's so much uh, targeting right um so i would just say get get tied in with these groups that are doing the work um uh, learn as much as you can and be in community with people that you know share your values because that's what keeps us going
0: yeah, thanks. I, I don't know if you heard us uh, either, but um, we talked a little bit about the the Reagan exchange with Begin in in eighty two in Lebanon, um, and the the way that Reagan was immediately public, very public, and and, and you know talks of conditioning aid, um, and and talks of con- you know exerting the authority we have to stop this was was uh, was public in no uncertain terms. And uh, you know, I know that being out at the White House that's exactly what you're doing. You're asking for the that's like the minimum. And um, you know, I just wanted to you know, you know, we we run into a lot of people day to day, especially here uh in in the, in the in the first state who um sort of want to tell us what's what. And uh, I'm not being told that anymore. I'm not it's not happening anymore. And that's not my problem. I don't look at it like my problem. Like, if 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 your if your boy can't if your dog can't hunt, it's not my problem. And um, Medina was very uh, in a very eloquent way um, mentioned that on the on the Chuck Modi stream yesterday. I feel exactly the same way. I I absolutely one hundred percent endorse that statement. Uh, and there's no question about it We need, we, we need a change in, uh, in course uh, with Israel We need focus on Palestinian rights the Apartheid has to end, ethnic cleansing has to end And we have to figure out a way out of this The first thing is absolute ceasefire now Forever, forever And then we'll sort it out, that's it And um, Medina, thank you so much I'm going to let you rest a little bit now that you've been under the, we lost you under the Baltimore tunnel.
1: <laughs> okay, I appreciate you, you guys.
0: Yeah, are you going? Are you going to be around? Uh, are you going to be around tomorrow? Are you going to rest all day tomorrow? What's, what's your plan?
1: Oh no, I'm I'm in in, in to DC and back every day. Uh, oh, got, you're going back yeah, and
0: forth got, every day. I've okay, got Yeah, because yeah, uh, you know,
1: there. I'm I'm focused on this, but I'm also a state rep who's got to go to community meetings, and I've oh, got to, yeah. you know got stuff I got to handle in Delaware. So, yeah, um, 21st,
0: 21st century Biden on the train back and
3: forth.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I can't uh, wait to catch one of these guys so I can bird dog them and show up to the hunger strike all hyped up.
2: Just make sure you <laughs> get it on tape. Put it on TikTok. But Medina, please take good care. I mean. You are our brave heart. What you are doing is beyond, beyond exceptional. Mm-hmm. And you are an inspiration to all of us. And we love you. Oh, I love you all too.
0: Yeah, solidarity. We love you, sister. And be and and, and I think I I want to echo that too. Everybody here, you know, I, I know it's important to you. I, I notice it's an important thing, but just make sure you take care of yourself. Get some
2: sleep tonight. Yep,
1: yeah, please. We'll do. We'll do. All right. Um, I appreciate you all. We'll See speak you to you soon. Bye.
2: Um, Can I add to what Medina was talking about with Delawareans or Palestinian human rights? Um, In the past month, you know, I had mentioned that people have been reaching out and they have joined our listserv. So for your listeners that are out there that really want to learn more, they need to go on delphor.org, D-E-L-P-H-R.org. We have many, many categories um, we have FAQs, there's, there's history involved, there's, you know, book recommendations, but I wanted to highlight, you know, for your audience, these are the things that you could be doing now because people are reaching out to us saying, what can we do? What can we do? Perfect. This, is, this is a devastating situation. What can we do? So the first thing is call members of Congress, okay? On social media, amplify Palestinian voices on Instagram. There are many, many amazing um, you know, reports and postings that are going on. And TikTok and Twitter and as well. And they need to go on there. There are Palestinian journalists who are reporting. There are Palestinian analysts who are doing reporting. Um, and the next thing is to really try to start studying the BDS movement, boycott divestment and sanctions and you can go on bds.net or bdsmovement.net and
0: we'll link to by the way everyone as we as carl will yes. hear this we link to all this in the show notes everything you were saying wonderful there'll be a link right under okay
2: the show. that's awesome and then um support you know palestinian relief funds for instance playgrounds for palestine the palestinian children's relief fund um, there's the Middle East Children's Alliance, the Islamic Relief USA, Doctors, you know, Without Borders. Doctors Without
0: Borders always. A big um,
2: so there's all these, you know, um, organizations that are doing just tremendous work. And they're definitely trustworthy. The ones she just- very yeah. trustworthy. Yeah. I mean,
0: obviously, people know Medicine Sans Frontières, but um, you 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 vet all of these. They, these are these are organizations that are getting um, aid and support to yes. the people who need it. yes, that's, that, that's just that's it.
2: And also. You know, come on out and, you know, be at a protest. Participate in a protest.
0: Yeah, I can tell you this is a good time to talk about it. Yeah. The, the, the demonstration and the march we did in, uh, on Barley Mill Road to the right. president's house a few weeks ago. I've been to, like, a lot of different kinds of protests. I've been to ones with, like, millions of people and ones with, like, six people. Mm-hmm. So diff- all different stuff. And I didn't know exactly what to expect, but I, was, I, I knew it was going to be sort of what it was going to be. Um, the people that were there were, like, the most diverse. The vibe was probably the best vibe I've ever been in in one of those things. Mm-hmm. Tons of families. Um, you know tons of tons of like uncles and stuff going to pray beforehand all that stuff <laughs> yeah. yeah he's like oh look uncle's going over there doing their yeah, thing." The I, know from, just... yes. I know I know what's happening <laughs> um but just like it was just a a really really good vibe um I think the, like I said the families made it made it cool too and 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 so I think people maybe not this audience, but in general people sort of like i'm not i don't go to that stuff I don't really Thing. I mean, you mentioned it before about sort of being non-political, being sort of in a bubble. You have something else going on. You can come do this. You can come support uh, and, and just come out to one of these actions. It's not—it's not scary. You can bring your children. You can see what people, what the speeches are. You can feel like you're feel like you're part of it. Um, because I can tell you, you're going to want to be part of it. When somebody asks you, like, "Hey, this is real bad. What'd you do?" So, it's, a show up for humanity. it's it is it's show. If you're a human, yeah. you should show up for humanity.
3: Up. And we were talking about, um, you know, it it sounds impossible when we talk about how much money APAC puts into candidates and all that. But, um, I wanted to highlight it. Like, you know, Summer Lee was, I believe, she's a state rep oh, yeah. in Pennsylvania. Um, she won. They they really tried. To, they put their money in to unseat her, and they couldn't do it. Like, so my point is that it, it, things might sound impossible, but you would. I was saying this to my dad on our podcast the other day. Donald Trump was our president. How can you think anything is impossible now? Like nothing, not everything is fair game. And, um, you know, it, it, in the, in a movement, not just a protest, but there's a role for everybody. If you're like, hey, I'm not a great speaker. Or, I'm not really good at writing. There's always, we can use, Anybody and everybody in even the smallest ways possible, even just your ideas, you know, just to have you in the room would be so helpful. Um, and I'm also, you know, I'm also as secretary of communications for Delaware DSA, I'm going to plug us as well, Delaware DSA, where that's, that's our, um, you know, our handle on Instagram and Twitter and everything. And, you know, we, we're trying to do a lot of work, especially on Palestine right now. DSA is really coming through and we're we're hoping to set up a, a phone bank soon, which cause, uh, all the DSAs have been doing this. No no money for massacres. You can Google that. You can join a phone bank, actually, wherever you are. Just You can look at the dates and the times that they have it. And you can help call, like, not just your local representatives. I think they're trying to target specific uh, congresspeople. Um, so that's a great resource, for sure. And, uh, like, you know, it, it you would be, um, like, whether... The problem is, I understand when people are like, oh, I don't want to get political, but... Our life is so politicized, whether you like it or not.
0: Yeah, it's it's being done on you. Whether
3: yeah. You want so to, you know, so in that anger that you feel, anger is not a bad emotion. It's bad if you if you use it wrong. So channel that anger and and do something about it.
0: Well, one of the things, one of the big themes that we and, and we were talking before, we've done this for almost five years now, and one of the big themes always comes up is a lot of the people who st- really started to solidify a sort of activist leftist movement. Delaware, like people like Drew series, um, called their organization or conceived of their organization as a network. And that's why they call it that. And they're very good at finding where you fit, exactly what you said. So it could be DSA, it, 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 it could be um, Mike's organization, it could be anything. But if you get in touch with people, they're going to find things that you feel satisfied doing and that you can do to help that's been a it's been a big theme of ours and I really believe that especially people who are really committed their organizations are growing um, you tell us like what you like and what what you're into we will find important work for you to do that you'll feel good about absolutely there's no question about that
2: it's the power of the people and m- monetary help is always great too if you have no time
0: <laughs> that's a great point
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, I know you have a podcast uh-huh. well, maybe we'll link to it we probably, probably won't. Oh, but, no. okay. <laughs> um, but what you could do is you could check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash We've put out some really cool uh, patrons-only material lately. We did it over the Thanksgiving holiday. We're going to do more of that. If you want to check out Call Me Beta, you can. It's on all the platforms. We will link to it in a, in a show of solidarity I'll make sure we link to it. If it doesn't get linked, it's Carl's fault. Just remember that. (laughs) He fucking abandoned us. He abandoned us
3: today. Yeah, he left in the middle of this. I I think maybe APAC paid him um, (laughs) to sabotage us. That's (laughs) great. Uh,
0: Mike, thank you so much. Uh, I've really appreciated your story. I Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know. It It was great. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Rob, for this opportunity. I appreciate it.
0: And, uh... So, Jill, even though your brothers are more into, like, 2020 cricket than test cricket, it's fine.
3: Yeah, my brother. <laughs> yeah, my brother. He's uh, he's actually he, he made it onto I think the the B team of the Rutgers Cricket Club. Nice. So Very he's nice. he's t- he's taking it is serious. He bat.
0: Is he batters Is he bowl?
3: He's a bowler. Uh, what's know. he bowl? I have no idea. Yeah, I I'm know. not that. Yeah, I I, my husband was here. He could you can tell. Slow and I, straight. That's, that's I, I
0: bowl. I bowl slow and straight.
3: I still don't get cricket. All I do is root against England. <laughs> I mean,
0: you're, you don't, you're not alone on this, <laughs> no. mm-hmm. folks. Um, thanks again for listening. Um, we'll be back with more of this. You'll love it. You've loved everything so far, except for the haters. You also you hate it, but you still listen to it. But you love it. Exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, we always have one thing we say, which is left is best, but also Philistine.